Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Last week we looked at verses 21 through, we intended to go through 26, but the clock was not our friend, and we're not uh, slaves to the clock, but we do look at it from time to time, so there you go. And uh, so I decided that part two would be better, and that way I can talk about the important doctrine of propitiation, Philisterian, that uh, Pastor Ken actually spent probably about 10 minutes on at the, at the Sunday school at Bible study lesson. I didn't know he was going to do that. He was scaring me a little bit. <laughs> but it all worked together fine. It's not going to be a problem. So God's gracious, God's merciful. And I would thought maybe I was going to say, well, I don't have to preach today. Don't even. <laughs> but we will preach and may Jesus Christ be glorified. Let's just read the, the paragraph together. We won't even finish chapter 3 today, but we will be able to finish chapter 3 next week, Lord willing, and move into chapter 4. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time His righteousness, that He might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, that's a, a great paragraph. It's also one of Paul's hallmarks, a really, really long sentence. <laughs> that's a long sentence there, but Paul loves those long sentences. That's not the longest. That, that, in this passage, it's not the longest. So there you go. But that's what Paul loves to do. He piles up these ideas, and it's helpful to us, and we can pick them apart, we can study them, we can meditate upon them, we can know God better because of them. Quick review, very quick. Verse 21, you can just look in your Bibles during this review because it's going to be short. Verse 21, righteousness apart from the law. If a fallen man could keep the law to be saved, if fallen man had that ability, then why would Jesus Christ go to the cross? They say, well, it's on your own, guys. You can do it. Just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Save yourself. Can't be done. So the Lord Jesus Christ did the work for us that we could never have done by ourselves. It's righteousness apart from the law. The law can have nothing to do with our justification. The law is a valuable guide to show us the will of God in our sanctification, but it does not uh, make us righteous. It shows us, in fact, verse 23, how unrighteous we are. We're lawbreakers. We break God's law and do so continually. Well, where does righteousness come from? Well, verse, 23, verse 22 tells us righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, salvation can only come by God's grace, appropriated by faith, there's also another way to, to translate that, and in some ways I like this way even better. The phrase can be translated through the faithfulness of Christ. It's his faithfulness, his righteousness, what he has done that's imputed to us. 23, I already mentioned, verse 24, justification. Simple way to remember justification. I remember if anybody remembers that little two-word phrase. Mouth it to me, you don't have to say it out loud. Anybody remember? Two-word phrase, justification. You're in a courtroom. <laughs> the judge is pronouncing sentence. Ah, not guilty. There we go. Yeah, not guilty. Think of justification. Think not guilty. Some of these big theological words are a little easier to understand than others. Uh, that can really help to understand. And then redemption, we see in verse 24, the end of the verse. Uh, that's where we ended last week. And we said the great idea of redemption was the idea of being freed from Egypt. 
and the Israelites, slaves in Egypt, are now freed. And so, <coughs> that's the idea of redemption. We're freed from slavery. We're freed from the slavery of sin, the slavery of ourselves, basically. Uh, now, take your hymnal. We're not going to sing. But um, let's turn to page 675. Not hymn 675, but look at the bottom of the page, and you'll see page numbers that do not line up with the hymn numbers. Page 675. There's a question that might come up. If Christ's death is the cause of our redemption, well, what about those that died in Old Testament times before the death of Christ? What would we say about that? What would we say about that? You know, the, the Corinthians got their theology mixed up a little bit, and they knew that Jesus Christ was going to return, and uh, then some of them started to die. And they said, oh no, they died before Christ returned. What are we going to do? I mean, oh no. <laughs> because they believed it had to be in their lifetime, and if they died before the Christ returned, okay, well, they had it mixed up, didn't they? And so Paul fixed them. Paul told them, no, that's not the way that it works. Well, what about the Old Testament saints who, who died uh, before Christ procured this redemption that we enjoy? Okay, chapter 8, paragraph 6. It can be a little hard to fully grasp in Old English, but just listen carefully. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, and it had to be that way, he had to be a man. He had to be incarnate. He couldn't, um, he couldn't die on the cross as a phantom or as a spirit. Okay. So, to, although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof, okay, three things, the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the wor world in and by the promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, going back even further there, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think you know that, but how many times have we said, and that's what we mean when we say that uh, Jesus Christ, you know, has, has uh, paid the penalty and paid the price. Old Testament saints looking forward to his coming and his work. They may not have fully understood what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. And certainly um, the disciples didn't fully understand what he was going to do or how he was going to do it. They were very confused. But uh, they soon learned. And the Holy Spirit gave them wisdom to know. Okay, so they looked forward, we look back. And uh, that's the way that it works there. Christ purchased a true redemption. I want us to turn to a misunderstood verse. Uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're gonna land on a couple of verses today that are often misunderstood. <coughs> Excuse me. And that is not to criticize anybody, but what can happen in our surface reading, or even if we have some bad presuppositions. In our first surface reading, reading through the Bible, uh, we might think that we understand something, and really we kind of misunderstand it, because we don't understand fully the context or fully the theological context of it. Now please, read your Bibles. I'm not telling you don't read your Bibles. Read your Bibles, but read your Bibles with great wisdom. And uh, with bad preconceived ideas, uh, we can get it wrong. Here's a verse where this happens, okay? Second Peter chapter two, verse one. Some of you are gonna have a little different reading than mine, but I'll explain that. Second Peter two, one. But there were also false prophets among the people, 
even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. The Greek word for Lord there is despotes, and um, we now use it in English as a despot. And that's not considered a good thing, to be a despot. You know, that means you're authoritarian, you can do whatever you want to do, and uh, you rule people, usually cruelly, because that's what uh, despots will do when they're despot humans. Uh, when they're the Lord, of course, it's not going to be that way. Now, it's probably better to translate this master, denying the master who bought them. And so let's think about the imagery. False prophets among the people, talking about somebody else, even as there will be false teachers among you, church, okay? So we're talking about false prophets in the Old Testament, amongst the people of God of the Old Testament. False prophets, and we can see them. Um, I'm in my devotional reading, I'm in the book of Jeremiah, almost finished. And uh, I'll tell you, Jeremiah basically, a couple other guys were standing with him, but for the most part, all the other prophets were saying, don't worry, Babylon's not going to come. We're going to be okay. Everything's going to be just fine. You know? And Jeremiah says, man, that's the worst thing you can believe because the Babylonians are coming. They're judges for our sin. You need to accept that. You need to just go with them. Don't fight them. They'll kill you. You're going to be destroyed. Go with them. Go with them. This is God's judgment on us. It's deserved. He said, throw him in jail, man. He's a traitor. What kind of a talk is that? He's discouraging the people. How are we going to gather an army to fight if we got this guy, Jeremiah, telling everybody uh, that uh, we should give up? Well, there were false prophets, you know. So much so, in fact, um, in one instance, um, uh, that pro the false prophet was prophesying, and uh, Jeremiah says, you're wrong. That's, that's not true. They're all before the king. You're wrong. That's, that's not what's going to happen. And the false prophet says, where did the spirit of God go from me to you? you know. Jeremiah says, well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens to you. And the false prophet, of course, um, didn't last very long. Actually died. Yeah. So, so this is the kind of thing we're talking about. There were false prophets among the people. There always have been. There always had been. And guess what, church? There's going to be false prophets among you, too. And there are probably more false prophets than true prophets, to tell you the truth, in today's world. If you take the church at large, I don't think that's true in the true church, but you take the church at large, yeah, false prophets everywhere. Okay, now... This often, we got that part down, secretly bringing in destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the master who bought them. Okay. Now, what's he talking about here? And bring on themselves swift destruction. Well, he's talking about very much the, the same thing that I just mentioned with Jeremiah. Peter is using an illustration, an application that comes uh, from the old, co old covenant days, the Old Testament days, and then bringing it up to speed in the, the new covenant here too. How Israel suffered in the wilderness because they refused to obey the master who bought them from Egyptian slavery. And they brought on themselves swift destruction because of that. What happened to them? 40 years of wilderness wandering. None of them, 20 years old and older, entering the promised land. They just went from Egyptian slavery to vagabonds in the wilderness. Okay. Well, they all died except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And they weren't the youngest ones amongst them, but they were the ones that believed God. And so they got to enter into the promised land. The others were swiftly destroyed. And believe you, just talking about Egyptian, well, that doesn't sound very swift, 40 years. In God's plan, that's swift. If it be 40, be it 60, be it 80 years, it doesn't matter. Uh, time like that doesn't matter to God. So, 
swift destruction, sometimes within six months, like Jeremiah's opponent, sometimes longer, but always destruction for heresies. Now, some people try to say this is denying the Lord who bought them. This, they're denying the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid for their sins. Well, you're, you're, you're actually putting that into the text. I can see why people do that. You know, and just a surface reading, you might think that. But uh, I just explained to you actually what it means. It doesn't have anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ purchasing redemption for his people, and then, you know, it didn't work. It failed. So it's easy to think that way. Maybe you've never thought that way. Oh, I didn't put it in your mind to think that way, you know. But see it the way that it is, just the way that Peter meant to be, just the way that it said, even denying the Lord who bought them, just like the Egyptians did, or sorry, just like the Israelites did as their master bought them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. The one generation failed, but the next generation entered in. God's promises held true. Okay, so now let's go back to Romans 3. That's one of the difficult passages that often is brought up. And uh, you'll probably deal with that, Pastor Ken, I would think somewhere along the line, maybe, it's in your series on limited atonement. That's one of the misunderstood verses. Not trying to steal your thunder there, trying to back you up, okay, as we go there. Okay, so now we come to Romans 3.25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation, that's hilasterion, by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So first we ask, what does propitiation mean? And it means exactly what uh, we were told at the 10 o'clock hour. It's the mercy seat. It's actually can be translated the mercy seat, but it wouldn't really make sense to say mercy seat here, would it? Uh, that would be confusing. But uh, it's where the blood was placed, you know, the blood. And we're gonna talk about that in just a second. Uh, Hebrews 9.5 uses the same Greek word where it's gotta be translated mercy seat. We'd have to translate it that way because he's talking about the articles in the tabernacle talking about all the things that were in there, including the mercy seat, which is the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? So context will dictate what we're trying to say here. So propitiation has to do with the wrath of God. That's what it's about. And that's why it's not popular to speak about. When we're talking about propitiation, we're going to be talking about God's wrath and God's wrath being appeased. And let's face it, you don't hear a lot about an angry God in today's world. I don't know if they still do this. I'm going to guess that they don't. But I remember when I was in a secular high school, we read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Okay. I don't think that happens anymore. You know? It may not even happen in Christian schools. I don't know. <laughs> but sinners in the hands of an angry God, and we read it. Now, now it, it wasn't explained to us very well. It was kind of explained like, wow, look at how these old-fashioned people used to believe. Can you imagine such a thing? That they talk about God's wrath and trying to scare people? Okay, that's basically the way it came across. Of course, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. You know? But the sinners in the hands of an angry God Propitiation has to do with the wrath of God and how to appease the wrath of God. And that's another buzzword that scares people. You say, well, you're just making Christianity like those guys that appease the angry gods by throwing a virgin in a volcano. <laughs> okay, well, that's not how you appease an angry god or gods. No, that, wouldn't, that would not do it. Uh, that would just make it worse, Okay. We're talking about how do we appease an angry God, because he is angry against sin. What did Romans 1.8 say? 1.18, say, the wrath of God. Okay, talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God does exist. 
Uh, John 3.36 says, for, well, turn there so you can see it. John 3.36. People love John 3.16. We love John 3.16. We love John 3. We love all of the God's Word. John 3.16 is a wonderful verse, quoted all the time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What, what, a, what a great verse. But you've got to read the verses around it, too. The verses around it are very, very important. We don't do that right now, but just do that on your own. But look at John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We need propitiation. That wrath needs to be appeased. And that's what we're talking about. Propitiation is a turning away from wrath, God's wrath, by the bloody sacrifice of Christ. When he was on the cross, it, the cross is a horrible thing. It's a terrible thing to imagine. But we don't even know the half of it. We don't even, even begin to, to comprehend the depths of it. Because on the cross, with all the pain and all the suffering that Jesus Christ endured in his body, let me just say this. There have been human beings that have died a worse death if it's only the pain of the human being that we're talking about. That's not to say Christ's death wasn't horrible. But Christ's death was the worst death that ever occurred for another reason. Not just the nails. Not just the mocking. Not just the wrath of God was poured on him. And that's what we don't see. Because there was three hours of darkness over the land while Christ was on that cross. And for three hours, the eternal God poured his wrath against sin on his eternal son. And he bore the weight of all the sins of all his people and the wrath that it deserved, which you and I well, if we're going to pay for our own sin, we'll go to hell for all eternity. And we won't even have paid for one sin. He pays for all of the sins of all of his people while he's hanging on the cross. The wrath of God abides on him. So how is God propitiated? Well, Christian friend, the wrath of God doesn't abide on you, does it? Why does the wrath of God not abide on you? Because it already was on Jesus Christ and he took it for you. That's why. So there is no wrath for you. There's no condemnation for you. And that's what propitiation is all about. Now, turn with me to Leviticus 16. This comes from an, an Old Testament concept that's very important. And we don't have time to to go verse by verse through Leviticus 16. But, you know, if you want to have some devotional reading this afternoon or sometime this week, uh, chapter 16 of Leviticus would be a good place to go. So you can learn a lot. And uh, some of you already know many of these things, but uh, Leviticus chapter 16, instructive and helpful. And we'll have to go through it uh, fairly quickly here. Okay. So we're talking about the mercy seat. And um, the Old Testament talks about the mercy seat. And we'll see what the mercy seat did and what the whole purpose of it was. Um, it has to do with the ceremony known as the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And um, it's an elaborate ceremony at the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. And uh, it uh, went on until the temple was destroyed. It still goes on today. But we'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay. Day of Atonement. It's, you can look at your calendars. A lot of your calendars will have Day of Atonement down there because it, it's a Jewish holiday. Well, let's talk about how the Day of Atonement was, was to be done in the Old Testament. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, 
when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And uh, of course, that was a, a horrible incident for Aaron, terrible thing. These were wicked men that did, uh, they were supposed to be the priests of God. And instead, they just did their own thing. And then they offered profane fire. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark. So there you go. Now, if you wonder about it, there it is. It's told to you very plainly, lest he die. For I'll appear in a cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. Now, this is where Hilasteria, yeah, the Hilasterian is found, the mercy seat. And um, I looked it up in the Septuagint. That's the Greek version of the Old Testament. And sure enough, there it was. Hilasterian, same word that we find in, in Romans, you know, and that's where the idea comes from. Here in Leviticus 16, it's the literal mercy seat, the lid that covered the ark, which was inside the Holy of Holies. The high priest cannot come into this whenever he so desires, as you saw in verse 2. There would be a time to approach the mercy seat and a way to approach the mercy seat. And we sing the hymn, Approach my soul, the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. Great hymn, you know, but it's telling us something. And if we understand the Old Testament, it's telling us something that, that we need to understand. Okay, don't come at just any time. But it says, Approach my soul to the mercy seat where Jesus answers prayer. You and I can come to the mercy seat any time we so desire. In fact, we should come more than we do. Okay, we should come more than we do. But that was not the way it was then. Once a year with blood and only the high priest. That's the day of atonement. But what happened when Christ died? What happened when Christ said, it is finished? The veil of the temple was torn in two. The boom. You know, the very place that you're not supposed to ever see or go was revealed, you know. So what are the Jews going to do? This is the most horrible thing you could imagine. You can die. But we don't think anybody died. What they did is they took the veil of the temple and they sewed it back up and put it right back where it was. Okay. And said, everything's fine. Don't look here. There's nothing to see here. <laughs> Sad. But God was telling the world something, and God was telling them especially something. This is no longer the valid way to approach me. Now it'll be through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the eternal high priest, the high priest that will ascend into heaven. And he's made the atonement that we've been picturing for well over a thousand years in the tabernacle and in the temple. Now Moses gives regulations for the Old Covenant Day of Atonement. And uh, I'm not going to read them because of time, but you find them in verses 3 through 10. And quite elaborate, and it gives you ideas of what to happen. Just to, to tell it, summarize it in my own words. Uh, there were holy garments the priest was to wear. There was a sacrificial bull that was going to cover his own sins and the sins of his household that he would have to approach the mercy seat with first. And then there were two goats that uh, were also part of this whole situation. Uh, one of them, very, very famous, the scapegoat. I know you've heard of the scapegoat somewhere along the line because that's, gone, that's gotten into the American fabric and, and talking about, you know, the scapegoat, you know, usually we feel like we're the scapegoat. We're getting blamed for something we didn't do, you know. Okay. Well, the scapegoat actually was um, better off in this particular situation because two goats were brought. The scapegoat, the sins of the people were ceremoniously placed on him or her, I guess. They were set free into the wilderness. Okay. 
And the picture was our sins are gone as far as the east to the west, you know, and just gone, not to be remembered anymore. And the other goat, well, not, not quite so good for him, you know. He was slaughtered, and his blood was placed on the mercy seat to make atonement for the people. Now, it wasn't a real atonement. It was never meant to be a real atonement. It was symbolic. It was to show what was going to happen, what the Lord was going to do. But it was very, very, very important because it's exactly what God told them to do. And they needed to do it. They needed to think about it. They needed to understand what was happening here. Now, verse 11, Aaron shall bring, Aaron, of course, the high priest, shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. You see, how is he going to approach God for the people when he himself is a sinner? Well, this is how he's going to do it. He has a bull, that, and that is what he has to do first. Verse 12, Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Testimony here, it's kind of interesting. It didn't say Ark of the Covenant, but it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so the testimony. And most of your versions will have that capitalized. It's talking about the Ark. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and before the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do that with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and above the mercy seat. So, so this is the picture that we have in propitiation. Okay. And so you go back to Romans chapter 3. This is the picture that, that Paul is painting for us. This is the, the situation that he's talking about, you know. It's how God dealt with sinners. And, of course, the rest of Leviticus 16 has to do with the sinfulness of the people themselves. Okay. So, in this special yearly Sabbath, which, by the way, wasn't always on Saturday. About one time out of seven it was. But there were Sabbaths that weren't done on Saturday. Okay, that's important to realize as we read the Old Testament. This special yearly Sabbath was their most holy day of the year. And to this very day in Yom Kippur, as it's called, um, almost, well, all religious Jews would observe it. And interestingly enough, many, many secular Jews observe it too. It's the one time their foot graces the synagogue is on Yom Kippur. Kind of like some, air quote, Christians will, well, do a little better than that. They'll go to church on Christmas and Easter. <laughs> so there you go. Kind of the same idea. They do it by tradition. They do it because they're Jews. Some don't even do it at all, but... but um, if you're Jewish and you work, I believe, uh, in America at least, you can get the day off if you say, I'm going to synagogue on Yom Kippur, you know. So, well, guess what? As they deal with this today, talking about today now, as they deal with what Christ did away with, they ignore the work that Christ did in propitiation. And since there is no temple, and the temple was destroyed, and there are no blood sacrifices that they can do anymore, and they refuse to recognize the final sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? Well, very simply, it means that uh, the Jewish religion as it is today is a false religion. Now, when I say that, I want to be careful 
because we've got a lot of people in America that hate Jews. And I don't get it. And a lot of people around the world that hate Jews, and I don't get it. I mean, you talk about wicked prejudice and, and vile. That's about as wicked and vile as you could be. You hate Jews, then you must hate Jesus. He was a Jew. <laughs> you know? I mean, come on. What, what in the world is that all about? Anti-Semitism, this has nothing to do with that. Let me just put it this way. The Jewish religion today is as false as Islam. There you go. They're just false. They both are false. They're false religions because they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that is revealed in Scripture. So the Yom Kippur of today is an empty shell. <coughs> it's actually worse than an empty shell uh, because it's, it doesn't even have the rituals anymore. They've had to create new rituals. They had to create new things that aren't in the Bible, you know. So they don't even have the Day of Atonement as the real Day of Atonement. But not only that, the worst part is that they reject the legitimate gift of God, which is propitiation through Jesus Christ the Lord. God's righteous anger can only be turned away by Jesus Christ. And that is the only way. And that's the point. And, and the rest of 325 talks about that here. Uh, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. You know, talking about, okay, a year, a year, a year, a year, a year. You know, passing them over, passing them over, passing them over. Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay. Now, now it's turned to Jesus Christ, look to him. Propitiation is the righteous way that God's wrath is turned away by the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, not by works, but by faith in Christ. Okay. Now, there's a couple other passages that deal with propitiation. Let, let me take a few moments to, to turn to them. Did I put them on your outline? Somewhere I lost my outline, so I don't know. I'll just turn to them. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, um, verse 16 would be helpful to us. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he, Christ, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hopefully that's as, as clear as day when you understand what propitiation means. But how about a more controversial passage? 1 John chapter 2. Another passage that as you talk to people about the doctrines of grace, they probably will put up in your face. and Say, huh, well what about this? You think you're so smart. Well, <laughs> we don't think we're so smart. We think we're pretty dumb, to tell you the truth. But, uh, but we love the word of God that makes us wise. 1 John 2, 2. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You go, well, you know, that's... Wait a minute. Everything you told me about propitiation, you know, <clears throat> and turning away of God's wrath, defeats the propitiation for the whole world, that means God doesn't have wrath anymore. Right? Nobody is under the wrath of God. Because the whole world has been propitiated by Jesus Christ. Is that what it says? Hardly anybody believes that. Hardly anybody, but I know a guy that did. I've told this, but some of you have been around a long time. You've heard it more than once. My Greek professor who I kind of became friends with, and, and was, once in a while, we'd, during breaks in the class, we'd go talk in the cafeteria, and he was going to try to proselyte me. He thought I was a typical evangelical. And so he said, well, you, I know you know 1 John 2, too. Let's, let's, uh, what do you think about that? He says that Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. And uh, he says, it's right there, in black and white. You can see it. 
You know, how, how are you going to answer that? Because he was a universalist. And he believed that uh, God saves everyone. And he loved to say this in class. He loved to say, you're going to be surprised at the grace of God and, and how wonderful it is uh, when you stand in heaven with Hitler. Hitler's going to be there in heaven because Jesus paid for his sins. Because Jesus paid for everybody's sins. He says, so how are you going to answer that verse? I said, well, that's, that's not what it means about the whole world. You know, John's coming from a Jewish perspective, and um, the salvation is not exclusively Jewish. Salvation is for the whole world, and he has a people of God in the whole world from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. This is what we're talking about here. And he looks and says, you're a Calvinist. <laughs> And then he said, I thought all those guys were dead. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I said, no, I, I, I'll admit it, I'm a Calvinist. He's, he said, well, you know, and then as we talked, he said, you know what? There's only two explanations for that verse. Mine or yours. You know? But the middle ground doesn't hold any weight, or you don't believe propitiation means propitiation. And he's right. He's right on that. Uh, whether he's in heaven now or not, I don't know. But I always appreciated his honesty with the word of God. Didn't always interpret it the way that I thought it should be interpreted. But he always interpreted it in the way that he believed it should be interpreted. In fact, this guy, I've said it before, uh, he was not a full professor at Claremont Theological Seminary because he believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And so they wouldn't give him tenure. <laughs> you know. well, there you go. Well, okay. So that tells us something, doesn't it? Well, I appreciate a stance like that. You know, so he taught, he, taught he taught history in high school to make a living and just did Greek on the side, along with about five or six other languages that he knew. So there you go. Okay. Anyway, he was a universalist. And, and there's only two ways to go about 1 John 2, too. You know, you've got to say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. He himself is the potential propitiation for our sins if we will do something. Now, I'm just adding a lot of words that aren't in the text there, but that's what you have to do if you don't believe that it means what it says. Let me give one more illustration. Back to the Day of Atonement. The high priest goes into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement to make propitiation, to turn God's wrath away for another year. And as he does so, he's wearing an ephod. And on that ephod, there were 12 stones. And the 12 stones were inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Okay. So who is he going into the tabernacle to make atonement for? Kind of tells us, right? <laughs> Was he going in there to make atonement for the Moabites? Was he going in there to make atonement for the Amorites? How about for the Philistines? Was that what he was doing? No. Every, everybody knows. No, he's going in there for Israel. He's going in there for those people, for the nation. That idea of the nation is very, very important. Caiaphas, uh, the wicked high priest that um, was behind um, the idea of crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he understands this principle of the nation because he says, it's expedient that one man die for the nation and not that the whole nation should perish. What Caiaphas meant when he said that was that, you know, Rome's going to come and they're, they're going to take us to account if we don't stop this Jesus Christ. We need to stop him. He's going against our traditions. You know, he's going against so many things. We need to take care of him to preserve everybody else. That's what he meant. But then, the Holy Spirit, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it because I'm not looking at it. And little did he know <laughs> that he spoke that day, he spoke that day about Jesus dying for the nation. <laughs> and not for that nation only, but that he would gather together the children of God throughout the entire world. 
So you see, I didn't go on a rabbit trail there, did I? I actually explained what we're talking about, the propitiation. Yeah, he died for the nation, but not every individual in that nation. But he died for that nation, you know. And for all true believers, the elect remnant that was in them in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And now, that elect remnant isn't just a remnant from the nation of Israel, but it's a remnant from the entire world. What a blessing. Propitiation. He makes propitiation for all. So, again, we see the picture in the Day of Atonement. There is no atonement. There is no propitiation. There is no turning away of God's wrath to those who refuse to come to the Savior. But when the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, makes atonement for us, propitiates God's wrath, it's for us individually as Christians whose names are figuratively inscribed, we could say upon his heart, but the Bible says on his hand. You know. And this should be an exciting doctrine. Jesus loves me. He really does. He really, really does and will never condemn me. There's one more verse to look at. I'll be real fast here. 1 John 4.10. If you're still in John, all you got to do is flip up. Because John is still talking about propitiation. Still thinking about propitiation. And 1 John 4.10 really isn't very controversial, I think, if we... Well, it, it can be. But 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, I know people take that. They take the us and the we's and all of that and say, well, that's every single person in the world, every individual in the world. And that's not the way that prepositions work. In, uh, they, they work in context. And this is a Christian context. Not that we loved God. See, if, if somebody comes and, and gives their testimony, which has never, ever happened, and we look at the testimonies before they join the church, they say, you know, I, I loved God, and then God loved me. <laughs> well, we would take a red pencil and mark through the testimony and say, nope, you're not going to say that here. And, and let's explain this about salvation a little bit more. But almost every Christian, no matter what their doctrinal view is, would tell you, yeah, he loved me before I loved him. And the Bible tells us we love him because he first loved us. It's biblical. Christians know that. We inherently know that by the spirit that lives within us. And, when other, when, and if someone were to say, well, no, I'm, I mean, you know, I, I was just um, found, found my way to God and uh, then he saved, you know, then he, then he loved me. And then he, he loved us before the foundation of the world. Right? And then he does everything to bring us to himself. That's the truth, you know. So anyway, Martin Luther was correct when Martin Luther said there's much theology in the pronouns. Very correct. Well, I think I'll save the rest. Just, there isn't much to say about verse 20. There's a ton to say about verse 26. But I think it'll suffice it to say this. And we'll close with this. Romans 3.26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that it might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know what that basically says? You know? God is just. It's right for the Father to forgive our sins. He didn't just arbitrarily say, well, you know what? Forget it. We'll just, we'll just forget it. Don't worry about it. No, he, he paid the price. Christ paid the price, and it's just, it's right that Jesus Christ has saved you. It's the right thing because he died for you. And it would be the wrong thing to have your sins placed on Jesus Christ. And then God said, well, I'm sorry, that was not good enough. You're going to have to pay for him yourself now. And they get paid for twice. Get what I'm trying to say? That's not just. 
It's just because it was done the right way. No wrath, no condemnation to the one who has faith in Christ, has received the promises, has partaken in redemption, has partaken in propitiation. It's right for our sins to be forgiven because they've been paid for by Jesus Christ himself. So go ahead and sin, right? Because it didn't no. Paul got accused of that. No, Paul, that's, that is not it at all. In fact, some people would say, well, if I believe that, I would just sin all I want to. Well, I don't know about you, Christian friend, but I don't want to sin. <laughs> you know? I do sin, and it grieves me that I sin. You know? If you're saying, hey, well, if I believe that, I'd sin all I want to. Hmm. Have to wonder about the heart that would say something like that. Basically saying, I'd rather have my sin than Jesus. But I restrain because I'm kind of afraid not to. You know. Fear will, will help you to a point. You know. But the truth of the matter is, we love him because he first loved us. We serve him out of gratitude for what he's done for us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've talked about heady things and spent a good deal of time doing so, looking at the word, looking at some things that are maybe not as familiar as others. But the gospel has been presented to us now in Romans 3, 21 through 26, in a paragraph been presented to us in a way that as we flesh it out, we see the, the entire gospel gets fleshed out later. So we could have spent two, three, four, five years on this paragraph, not have exhausted it, Father. But the rest of the book of Romans is going to continue on these same themes, so we need not do that at this particular time. But Lord, we thank you that you have a word that is so deep, that is so powerful, there is such depth to it that we can never come to the end of it. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the one who died and saved us. We thank you for the one that willingly took your wrath upon himself so that we would not bear your wrath. And as many theologians have said, it's God that saves us from God. And that's what we've been saved from. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.